0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Builders Build podcast. Today, I have some awesome guest, Jeff Parks, who's the founder and CEO of Stack Capital Group, which is a very interesting company. And Jeff has been an experienced finance professional and now starting his own company. So first of all, Jeff, thank you so much for joining the show today and super excited. Thank you very much for having me today, George. Okay, no problem. So let's get right into it. So I had a chance to review Stack Capital. I have to say, it's very interesting. And I think it's more fair for you to describe what Scott Capital does. Your opening message on the website says, this is the evolution of private equity. And I think that's super interesting. So first of all, tell us more about what Stack does and how it empowers entrepreneurs around.
1: Yeah. So what I wanted to create and my co-founders wanted to create was a platform to democratize access into the growth and late stage businesses out there. A lot of people aren't building wealth off these private companies because they don't have access to it whether they might be a non-accredited investor or they can't get underlying positions or they don't have the check size. So we wanted to do was build something that was just easy, seamless for an individual just to go on their brokerage account or phone up their retail broker to get access into these companies. So we're looking to build a pool of 10 to 20 growth and late stage businesses that we can put in that portfolio. And anyone who becomes a shareholder of Stack Capital gets exposure to those underlying companies. So it's something completely different versus the conventional fund where You're probably locked up for five or seven or 10 years, whatever the timeline may be. Us, you have liquidity whenever you need it. If you don't want to purchase more, you have that ability to, if you need to sell some because something changed in your lifestyle, you have that ability to, so as well. So that's the big difference with us in the conventional product that's out there.
0: So you you talk about shareholders. Tell us more about who is eligible to invest in stock capital. Is it just like people like, like ordinary people like me?
1: It's everybody. You could be the biggest investor out there from a pension or a hedge fund to a high net worth individual to accredited and non-accredited investor. Anybody has that ability to. All you have to do is go onto your phone, whether it's a Questrade account or your broker or Scotiabank account. You have that ability to buy our shares on the exchange and put it in a portfolio. You can also put it too. It doesn't just have to be a margin account. You have that ability to put it in a TSFA, RESP, RRSP. So there's a lot of flexibility with it.
0: Okay. And just tell us more about uh, the ticker for Stack
1: so that our viewers can yeah. look it up right now. So it's so TSX and then it's STCK. Try to keep it uh, simple for everybody.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. So I think Jeff, what you mentioned about the traditional way of like investing in startups or investing in private equity is very difficult. for uh, Even for accredited investors, I think the barriers are so high that pe- main people that inv- who are investing in private equity right now are the pension funds, like you said. So tell us more about like your approach with Stat Capital because the path of lowering, demor- or de- lowering the barrier of democratizing the access for public is so interesting. And I think so many people have approached it, but your approach is so unique. Share us more about your approach, if you can.
1: Yeah. So a lot of people will raise, they'll raise big funds and they're going to lock you into putting your capital away for five or six or seven years. Then they're going to go and invest that capital and seven years down the road, You can get your money back with us. We sat there and we said, well, what if people had that liquidity with the shares, but they could participate in the companies that they don't always have the chance to buy. And some of the companies, which I'm sure we're going to come to later on, like SpaceX or Varo or Bolt, you now have that ability to participate in those multi-billion dollar businesses before they go public. And there's a lot of value and wealth creation to be had on that private to public transfer. It's something different versus the conventional funds out there that are marketed to a very few individuals, versus we're opening the doors and breaking down barriers for everybody to participate in this asset class. And it's differentiated versus just your regular common stock or debt people are buying or other conventional funds,
0: yeah, and I think one thing that you guys are doing you realize well the transparency part is I went on to Stack Capital Group's website, and I think you guys are very transparent about which companies are backing you. What does your roadmap look like? and the financial performances. And I think for a private equity investor, they might have a delayed response or not instant access. So tell us more about the transparencies you guys provide to investors. What can they be?
1: Yeah, because we're a public company, we're obviously held to the highest standard. You have your auditors, you have people constantly looking at you in in, in a public forum. So we share all the information that we can from underlying companies. Some obviously companies don't want us to share their financial projections or underlying sensitive data to them. So we share as much as we can of the underlying businesses. And we put out there in terms of investment thesis when When we invest in one of these companies, we tell you why we're investing in that. So you can go through our investment theses. You can go through our ticket sizes of how much capital we're putting in these names. And you can go through those underlying businesses as well. So there's a lot of information that we give to our underlying shareholders to understand what they're investing in.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. And how do you guys pick companies, which companies to back? Um, Can can I know a little (laughs) more about that? (laughs)
1: It's, it's not the easiest things because there's so many, there's so many different companies out there and ultimately we have 10 to 20 businesses that we're looking for. So we're constantly saying no to underlying businesses that we think they might have a great growth projections or, or a great model, but because we only have so many shots, we're very selective and a number of these different companies. Like a lot of them come from our own networking connections that we have that we're, we're searching out or certain business models that we might see in one geography and we think it actually works well in a different geography. Granted, 85% of our underlying holdings, they'll be in North America, and 15% will be beyond that. We know that geography really well. We're obviously in the same time zone. It's easy to travel to those underlying businesses, and we know the legal system as well. So fishing out these different businesses from screening to our network, there's just a number of companies that we're constantly going through every single day. And it's great because you can see how one individual's model might work and how that could apply to a different business or different themes like, It's just constantly looking at different businesses all day, every day.
0: And I do want to ask about more about the stages that you guys back, because a lot of the Builders Build podcast audiences are startup founders themselves, many of them probably earlier stages, but just what kind of stages are you guys looking for?
1: Yeah, so for us and what we went out to our underlying shareholders on our original pitch was to go after the growth and late stage businesses, because we have that proven product market fit. Generally, a lot of these businesses have $100 million plus in revenues associated with underlying business. So we want that proven product market fit where ultimately the cash is there for increasing that sales force to propel, propel that top line higher. We do steer clear of the early in seed stage just because the risk profile is too high for underlying shareholders. Yeah, so if you're looking at that J-curve, we're definitely on the, on, on the upslope of the J-curve.
0: Okay. Yeah. Uh, so $100 million in, in annual revenue. It's what you guys are looking at.
1: We, that's generally, we can go, we definitely can go lower than that, but it's okay. generally kind of like the ballpark bogey that we're looking at. Okay. That's very interesting.
0: And I think when it comes to later stage, uh, I personally know a few later stage companies, I think a big question that they're facing is, should I just keep re- keep on raising more and more rounds or should I let some private equity investors in to do another round or just make my life easier in the current stage? So how does stack capital directly empower
1: entrepreneurs? In terms of empowering the underlying individual, how to like... How can we help those underlying businesses out? Exactly. Yeah, so big thing which even helps us win and get on cap tables and win deal flow from uh, underlying organizations is that we've gone through the process of going to public form. So going through that IPO process, understanding how the private markets are going to interpret or sorry, how the public markets are going to interpret for private businesses. So we've actually won a lot of deal flow and have been very helpful to underlying founders. Because they want somebody who's been in the trenches on an IPO process. That's very powerful to them. Versus a lot of the venture capital guys will sit there and say, "Okay, well, here's the banking department, and you're going to deal with the banking department, and there's your IPO." So it's nice to it's nice to be wanted by those businesses to help them to facilitate them from going public to private, or sorry, private to public.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very interesting idea,
1: and I think a lot of companies. Yep. I would even add on top like just the connections that once you start investing in a certain group or you see underlying businesses, you can then help other founders with introductions on, well, this is going to help build your business. I think this would actually be a good fit for you. I want to introduce you to XYZ because it's going to help grow your underlying business. Because At the end of the day, capital is definitely commoditized, so you have to be offering them something where it's helping their underlying business grow or connections or helping them with an IPO process. yeah. And I would matters. say one thing that actually helps us out too is that we're Canadian. That's mm-hmm. a big selling factor.
0: Okay, that's awesome. But yeah, I, and I agree with you on that, Jeff. I think like a lot of VCs nowadays, I think founders make complaints that they just put in money in it and not do, really doing the work. So I think like what you guys are doing there, especially in later stages, empowering companies, I think that is, uh super awesome. So let's, let me ask more about what type of companies do you usually back? Because when it comes to traditional VC, they have type of companies, they back Proctech or other types of companies. So is there any type of companies you guys are looking for specifically
1: or just. It's almost better to sit there and say, what don't we back versus what do, what, what are we looking for? And I would sit there and say, one of the things like we generally don't do is biotech companies, right? There's too much binary risk of, is it going to go through an FDA trial or is it not going to go through that FDA trial? And there's a lot of binary risk there, so we're trying to avoid those binary risk underlying companies. And then obviously 85% North America, so we're in our geography that we know. Other than that, there's so many different themes and so many different things that we like. Like we have an e-commerce company in there right now. We have a fintech company in there right now. We have a space company in there right now. We have a travel and leisure because we're we're thinking rebound on travel and leisure coming out of coming out of COVID. We have a cybersecurity business in there. So we want a diversified portfolio and we never want to give ourselves the barriers where it's you can only look at a certain subset of companies because that detracts from returns for underlying shareholders so we keep it very broad and every day we're looking at something different
0: yeah that's very interesting i do want to ask more about you know the process of going public for you guys because i think stack capital as you well aware went public i think not a lot of companies do that uh, when with, with they're trying to get more investment deals so what is the process like of going public for you guys?
1: The process of going public, it was, so we needed, what we needed first was basically a large size ticket from a large organization, i.e. a pension or a hedge fund, because then your business model works. If you can get that validation from those individuals, then it's helpful to use that validation to go raise additional capital. We went out, we started it April 1st and went out basically finished the IPO around June 15th, June 16th was the day that we first started trading on the TSX. And it's a lot of work. It's a lot of nights and long days of going out, constantly pitching to individuals to get that capital and selling that story. And ultimately your investors have to believe that you can get the deal flow and that you're going to pick good companies because ultimately what were they writing us? They were writing us a blank check and we were telling them a story of something that we could go out and that we could do. They had the belief, they had the faith in us. A lot of them checked our backgrounds with uh, other individuals and liked us and believed in us. So that was a big portion of that IPO process. And now we're executing that strategy of going to invest in these businesses. And we've got five, uh, five in the portfolio so far and a number coming soon as well.
0: Yeah. And I think there's a lot of benefits for a traditional investor a retail investor or a professional investor to be investing stack. And I guess the first thing is that the, the liquidity, right? If I put the $2 million into a private equity fund. Uh, it p- might take 12 or four, 24 months before I can take it out. But for you guys, it's a very flexible in terms of that. So uh, share us a little bit more about what kind of benefits that's unique. Yeah. The stock capital provides.
1: Yeah. That's the big thing. I can't tell you the number of individuals who we hear of complain that. They're looking for liquidity especially in, in, in today's market where. They don't want to lock their capital up for four or five or seven or 10 years. So they want that flexibility and, and. We're the only ones that actually offer that flexibility on a daily basis where you can participate in these privates, but also get that flexibility with liquidity. I'd also, you're seeing in the market some underlying funds gate people's money when they want redemptions. Well, that can never happen with us because we're publicly traded. So if you want your money back, you have that public, you have that listing where you can either buy more or sell it, whatever you need to do at that period of time. So, those two pieces are very important, why we think we stand out versus the other conventional private equity business that's out there. Yeah. So look, and now I, let's talk. Yep. Yeah, go ahead. I would even say it's, a, it's also a big advantage too, because we're a permanent capital structure, all these other individuals that raise funds, when the life of the fund comes to an end at year six or seven or eight, those funds need to liquidate to pay out their LPs. We can actually take advantage of them being a seller of those underlying portfolio companies because we have that permanent capital structure. So that's a big advantage for us versus fund structures.
0: Yep. I'm I'm super glad you said about that because I think in the founder community, a big thing that founders like myself look at is like, what is the life cycle of the fund right now and what's, how many years has the fund already formed that's backing us, right? So I think one fear that entrepreneurs have is that once the fund is reaching its end or near its end, that VCs or PEs will pressure founders to sell their shares,
1: right? So does that, and I guess for you guys. you're, You're exactly right. And then that founder's always nervous as to, okay, well, they're selling that underlying position. Now, who's that going to, who's going to be on my cap table, which definitely frustrates a lot of founders out there. So that's why I think these permanent capital structures and evergreen structures are so much better because we can stay with you in the private market and into the public market and be that guiding force.
0: Yep, super exciting. So let's talk more about entrepreneurs since we mentioned entrepreneurs. So let us know a little bit more about what is the typical process of you guys backing company. I know you already mentioned the screening process of using the warm neutral network, but what is the process like from the beginning to?
1: Yeah, so in the public world, for example, you can go on the sec.gov and you can pull up companies financials very easily now in the private market that's not the case you need to basically get a warm introduction to the management team then you need to see if they're actually doing a round and from that round then maybe you can get access into a data room to assess that company to get involved so there's mm-hmm. it's, it's much it's a much different approach in the private market when you're assessing these businesses and a lot of it is that network effect of okay hey we're investing in your business are there any other individual entrepreneurs that that we could reach out to you reach out to that are in your network for us to look at their companies so it's a lot of that word of mouth it's a lot of that real hustle and grind to go onto different websites and see okay who's doing well what series did they just raise is this a business of interest to us and then can we dig deeper can we facilitate an introduction through a warm intro to get into the to get into that company and hopefully then we can see financials cuz that's the big difference in the private versus public market access to information is very difficult but once you get it it's very powerful so there's so that's a that's a big difference And in terms of actually getting these shares there's two methods there's obviously primary method which Either a bank is going to help facilitate a transaction for them, raising a series A, B, C, D, or company is doing it themselves. And you're going to put that money directly on their cap table. There's also a really big secondary market that's that's, um, occurring where people are transacting these private shares back and forth on an over-the-counter market, i.e. fund. Might need, uh, might might have a liquidation, and they need to sell that underlying opportunity. In which case, you can technically trade these shares in the secondary market. So there's two ways that we can find liquidity on underlying businesses: it's the primary side and the secondary. Yeah, that process
0: I think is very unique. I think it's the first time I've heard about it, and it's super super unique. So yeah, now Jeff, talk more about like the companies that you guys have already. What are their names, saying It's a lot of you.
1: Yeah. So first, uh, first one we came out of the gate with was a uh, Varo Bank, a Neo Bank on the west coast of the US and California, San Francisco. And they raised around 500 million plus at a $2.5 billion valuation. They're the first neobank with an actual banking charter. And that's very powerful because it can increase their margin profile versus if you're just a conventional neobank, you're probably using somebody else for your back end, in which case you're giving up a lot of your margin to them because they have the banking license. So they're trying to empower 180 million battlers and builders to help them develop credit scores and just have access into a bank account that's easy. A lot of the bigger U.S. institutions, they don't service these people because the U.S. institutions can't make money off them just because how bloated those corporate structures are. So that's VARO. Second one, obviously we have, everyone's gonna know this name, we have exposure to SpaceX, which I think that name speaks for itself, betting on Elon Musk, We're, we're very excited about that, especially his whole Starlink satellite network that's in SpaceX. Having a world telco that can service almost any person around the world, wherever they may be, or in rural areas, if you're in rural Ontario or somewhere in the US where you can't get a fiber cable or or a coax cable into your house, well, this is quite the solution for them. So we think that is just, that's a really big opportunity. Plus, when you can launch a rocket up and land it on, land it on a dime, that's pretty darn impressive. In reusing his rockets, I think on uh, Falcon 9, he's now up to 12 reuses. So your revenue is staying the same, and your costs continue to decrease because the reusability of the rocket, which is really, really neat. Another company, Bolt Financial, they're a one-click checkout processor. So three years ago, Amazon had a patent on the one-click checkout. It expired. And Ryan Breslow, the CEO, decided, well, what if we could democratize access to the one-click checkout? It's quite nice going on Amazon, you fill your cart, you hit one button, all of a sudden everything's delivered to your house. No putting in your name, putting in your address, credit card numbers. So Ryan's actually democratizing that to all other e-commerce sites out there. So they can build that into their checkout process very easily, and it's just a one-click experience. Then there would be Hopper behind that, and Hopper is a travel and leisure business where There's over 66 million downloads in the US all on your phone. And the great thing with Hopper is they decrease the price of travel because they don't spend so much money on Google Ads, which means they can pass that savings on to you. So if you actually comparison shop on Hopper versus Expedia versus Booking, like nine times out of 10, there was a Bernstein report in the US, nine times out of 10, Hopper will be cheaper. So it's just a beautiful platform that has flights, car rentals, hotels, and now they're actually going against Airbnb and adding in uh, individual rentals as well. So we think there's a real big uh, rebound in travel that's going to happen after COVID. I'm sure both you and I are just dying to go to a beach or dying to go somewhere, get out out of uh, Ontario, and we're excited with that one. And then we have uh, Prove, which is a cybersecurity company, where anytime if you want to open you want to open a cryptocurrency on a cryptocurrency trading platform, or you want to open a U.S. bank account, or you want to get a Visa card, they actually authenticate you via your phone in the background. So you'll never have an idea that you're actually encountering them. But nine of the top 10 U.S. institutions use proof to authenticate their underlying individuals. And they've even, they're going to expand at one point, your phone can actually pick up the gate of your step and they know George is on the other side of that phone, i.e. you're fine and safe to log in or open an account. So it's just very interesting area in the cybersecurity world.
0: Yep. I I actually heard of many names on the list and I was, I have to say, it's amazing that you, you guys got all those companies um be able to become a portfolio company. That's awesome. So what is the plan of holding on to those companies? Is it mostly like very long-term? Uh, for you guys, or
1: no, for us, So we like to buy these companies, work with management, try and help grow their business, introduce them to different businesses so that they can help grow. And ultimately, when they reach the public market, we will look to exit them at, at one point because what does our value add to our underlying shareholders? It's to own private businesses for them. Once companies go public, then everyone has access to them. It's very easy for an individual to participate in that business.
0: Yeah. And I saw that all those companies are very unique. It it, it would be fair to say that they're all uh, corresponding industry leaders in this space. Is that one of you guys' thesis?
1: We do try and pick uh, we do try and pick some of the top leaders in their industries and back founders that we're very impressed with and underlying business models that, that we like. And we also want to offer a basket where. It's not just everything's fintech or everything's e commerce or everything's space. We want that diversified portfolio for our underlying share.
0: Yeah, and I think it, it is very diversified. Hopper, which is in travel approved cybersecurities, Barrel, and fintech and bolt. So that that is awesome. So what kind of future deals can we expect coming from Stack Capital Group? I'm not going I to think, details about I, which companies they are. Yeah, <laughs> of course.
1: Yeah, I wish we could. I could tell you about I'll tell you about some of them. But I think I think overall themes that we would be looking at are Robotics, for example, I think there are some very interesting ideas in businesses surrounding that theme, because I think you're going to see, obviously globalization peaked in my opinion, and you're going to see reshoring of some assets, not everything, but you'll see reshoring. How do you decrease the cost of labor? Cause your labor costs are going up. People don't want to work in warehouses. I think there are some really interesting robotics businesses that are out there that we would look to. Um, I think even on like housing, how do you increase the rate of housing and new housing starts for millennials who are out there? Like they want to get into houses, but the cost is prohibitive and even just the turnaround of building new houses. So there has to be a speedier way. Um I think there's some really interesting opportunities in still in the in in the fintech land. Creator economy I think is fantastic. What are tools that people can use to help them? um, facilitate their online profiles or online businesses. So there's, there's some overall themes is as well.
0: Yep. So that, that's great talking about entrepreneurs. So now let's talk more about the future of PE and VC, Jeff, because I think we've mentioned some of those. So again, like on your website, you mentioned that you, you guys are pioneering or changing the future of PE and VC. And I think coming from a FinTech founder, I think that is the future of, of those industries is becoming more accessible for retail investors. And just lowering the barriers, which is what you guys are doing. So, what do you think the future for PE and VC holds?
1: Hey, sorry, George, you, you broke up there. Just went in. I think the question was the the future of PE and the future of VC. Uh, yes, I think uh, you're definitely always going to see individuals who have those big who, who have those big funds that are raised from accredited investors, pensions. But I really think you need to see more people opening the door to everybody to kind of break down that wealth divide that is is all over the place right now there's a lot of non-accredited investors they just can never invest and even you have funds and even some very big uh, big institutions could never really invest in this space so by doing it in the form that we're doing it it gives everybody that access so I think more people will have to wake up to it and you probably see some similar businesses come to the market over time but yeah you can't just continue on just solely fun business. So I think you'll definitely see some.
0: Yeah. And speaking from personal experience, like I have personally seen many companies that's like starting to lower the barriers for backing startups, like very early stage. For example, like Republic, Angelless Ventures, I think they're doing pretty well in that regard, but you know, just on a personal expe- perspective, like I prefer companies that are already cash flow positive. As you guys said, backing companies that have made a hundred million dollars a year. That's definitely the top companies that I would like to pack, although their valuations will be higher. But I think a lot of investors, even now, right now, like people who are watching CNBC, watching those other business news, I think they will be more susceptible of them. So I think that's very interesting. <coughs> so excuse me, give me one second. So yeah, I would be very interested to, to learn Jeff, what are the people that you already work with before, before you started Stack? I think you're in the financial industry. There are many people you work with in the finance. So let, how about let's talk a little bit more about your background before you started Stack. What were you working on?
1: Yeah, yeah. So before I started Stack, I was at a hedge fund for ten plus years with a group of guys that were awesome. Like the head, uh, head individual there taught me almost everything I know in terms of uh, picking underlying securities, and had a great, a great start and a great opportunity to just hear all the companies out there in the world. You go look for what underlying businesses and trends that you think are 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 interesting opportunities and how can we invest in these businesses and make money for our underlying LP holders so i was i always love to traffic in very esoteric names and interesting things where you're digging more you're have a, more of a hustle than the next individual to actually go find these underlying opportunities be there first and then go tell that story to the rest of the world and then they're coming behind you and investing in your underlying businesses So that was always me. Like I always had, I grew up as a kid. I always had a fascination for the show, how it's made. I love seeing stuff go through those, uh, factory lines and understanding where the bottlenecks were and just looking at different businesses. So it bodes well for me, especially when I was on the hedge fund side and in this world, the world's your oyster, go find these underlying businesses, go see good opportunities. So it was quite a good starting ground for my.
0: Yeah. And I, I do wonder what are your previous colleagues are saying about stack because in in a way, <clears throat> what you guys are doing are completely changing the landscape. So it might even impact them. So what are their feedback to you?
1: you know, they were very they were very positive, very uh very positive on it. They're actually investors as well, and it's for what we're doing. It's better for private market businesses. I think the fund business is totally fine for public securities. I think that'll be there for forever. So it's. It's definitely a little bit of a difference when you're just solely doing private businesses because you can't own these privates in a fund and somebody rings up in 45 days, they want their money back. Well, trying to facilitate that transaction is very difficult. So you need need a platform, an evergreen fund to match the duration of the underlying investments that you're investing in. So Privates are great for the structure that we have. I wouldn't do publics in. So there's a, there's definitely a difference.
0: Yeah. That's, I think that's very interesting. And I do want to ask more about the specifics about how it works for an average investor, because I know you guys are holding long-term for those, for those companies until they become public. So is the daily variations of the stock price going to be worrying for some investors, have you ever received like some feedback on that? Just curious why.
1: Yeah. So, so obviously the stock can deviate from the underlying book value per share which can create opportunities for new buyers um, to come in and the stock can track that. And obviously we're trading at a bit of a a discount, which we're working on closing that gap. Um, And there definitely can be volatility in those underlying shares, especially when you're early on in the business and you're around a hundred million. But as we prove this model out and we grow and we get more trading, uh, trading volume in there, I think that's better and better for investors to have that liquidity and to close that uh, discount to book value per share.
0: Yeah, that's uh, I think that's a very unique perspective. So, so at last, let's talk more about what is it like to work with later stage company founders? Because uh, even though I know a few founders from, you know, Series C, Series Yeah, a, a lot of
1: them, a lot of them. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, George, you cut, you, you cut out there.
0: Yeah, I'll I just say, please go ahead.
1: In terms of what it, what it's like to work with the later later stage founders? Uh, exactly. A lot of the so oh. a lot of them have definitely, a lot of them have definitely cut their teeth going from like the Series A, B, C. And now they're on to their later DEF rounds before they're going public. Um, a lot of them have steady businesses or steady or businesses, I, I, I should say. And they, like I said with us, they value our advice on 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 the public market comps, on what it's going to look like to IPO one uh, one day. Very receptive for for calls and you can talk to them quite a bit. Um, on their underlying businesses and how like we can help improve. So a very fluid conversation. Obviously when you get up to like, the really big companies, that's harder to have those conversations with management than you are like, let's say a billion to $15 billion company.
0: Yeah. And can I just ask like, how many deals are you guys looking to do right now? And how many deals are you guys looking to do a year or two?
1: Yeah. So for us, we want to get to that, we want to get to that 15 to 20 names, which we think we're at five right now. We think we can get there let's call it by end of year end of year timeline the one great thing that's working for us right now is we're sitting on around 70 70 70 percent cash and the dislocation in the late stage and growth stage market is boding very well for us because you have individuals who are looking for liquidity and to move just very high quality business so that dislocation we can take advantage of with the capital. I was going through our IPO, we knew there would be some rockiness in Q4, Q1 when comp when the companies were comping on very good numbers during COVID. Now, obviously, it didn't factor in the Ukraine Russia war, which is exacerbating this issue. But we're excited with the opportunities that are being presented to us right now, and every day you're just seeing more and more of them. And I yep. think too, as you as this continues on, like you saw the public markets reset. And now you're seeing the private markets, which always take longer than the public markets to reset, you're starting to see those resets of companies. Like you'll take an example of Instacart cutting their valuation by 40% because they're trying to retain underlying employees. Well, obviously you don't want to be in, I think it was the $40 billion round or the round that was before the 40% cut. So, But that is presenting a lot of really good opportunities for us right now who are cashed up versus the people who are fully invested.
0: Yeah, it's a great point. I, I do actually want to just to follow up question on that, because a lot of people in the private, uh, in the public sector are saying that it's basically very difficult to invest in private companies, especially startups now, because their valuations are so high. And I think, you know, after we work in 2019, people are very cautious about buying companies that are, had a very high valuation going to IPOs. So what is your take uh, on that? Because you guys clearly go in from the later stage push perspective. People might be asking, are you guys valuing companies too high? So what would you say?
1: Yeah, I would say. The 2020 to 2021 vintage of companies, when we were looking at some of the primaries and some of the secondary offerings, you would see numbers that would just boggle your mind sitting there saying everything needs to go perfect for you to grow into that valuation. Well, now with the wind coming out of that sale, you're seeing primaries now come at a lot lower of a price than what they were before. Investors focusing more on organic growth. So lower, lower your growth to reduce your cash burn is we actually want a path to profitability. And there were companies out there that you'd see where it was just growth at all costs. We just want you to grow as fast as you can, as quick as you can, and we'll go out the door on an IPO. That's not accepted anymore. So I think you'll actually see more and more down rounds of companies and companies cutting their valuations as well, because they need that retention of those underlying employees. Those employees believe that, okay, all my stock besting at $40 billion, but the company's only worth 20. Well, I can understand why that individual doesn't want to stay there at the company. So I think you're going to see more resets. And I think you're going to see more individuals focusing on those closer to profitability businesses that Hey, we're growing at 30 or 40 or 50% versus we're growing at a hundred percent plus, but we can't keep that growth rate up because we, we don't want to burn that much.
0: Yeah. And I think speaking like an early stage funders perspective, I think the past few years, especially after the interest rate dropped to zero, well, has been super crazy on the early stages, founder part as well. I saw many companies in the seed and series A stage raising like sky high valuations. So would you predict like they will just be going down in like valuation in later rounds? I'm
1: not predicting. Oh, I I would definitely say there's going to be a lot of valuation compression on on these businesses and even very high quality businesses. The ones that are close to profitability or profitable, they they don't have to take down round because they can kind of just push it along. Now your IRR is going to go down over time um, and they might wait a year or two before they come back to the market and hopefully they've grown into that valuation at that point. But the ones who are really big cash burning entities, I think you're going to see a number of down rounds, which hasn't set into a lot of investors yet, but I think will when you start getting into July, August, September, after they've been burning so much money, especially the companies that were raising in like September, August of last year, July of last year. Wow, That's amazing insight. So what kind of advice would you say for an early
0: stage founder when he or she is looking for what kind of valuation should I set we might
1: my- I think it's all going to obviously depend on growth rates and underlying businesses and in that path to profitability. I do still see there's a lot of strong appetite in the seed and earlier stage. You've seen a lot of uh, US institutions back off from the late stage valuations and take that capital and redeploy it into growth and early stage. Just because then they can get a bigger piece of the pie. If you're investing that early, like you're not looking for the down rounds, you're probably still going to walk it up as it's a smaller dollar value company, as long as they're hitting their targets. So I think you're actually seeing a big pool of capital go into that.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. And I think Jeff, you already touched on this, but I just wanted to expand on this. So I think a lot of VCs are already talking about that. They're very cautious about the rest of this year, which is 2022. They're saying that a party is about to stop. In a way, I think it's very interesting because there has been voices like that since the end of 2021, people are, folks are saying that once the Federal Reserve raises the rates significantly, the party is going to stop in the VC sector, especially for early stage companies and maybe impacting the later, later stage companies. Um, so what is your outlook, I guess, for the rest of 2022, or even a little bit more beyond, I would like to get your thoughts.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a cautious tone, but I do think a lot of these companies will if, it, if you're a high cash burner you're probably going to have to take it down round which you're seeing a number of them i think there's going to be investors are going to gravitate towards those ones that actually see a path to profitability and they're more interested in those not lower growth rates is still very impressive a 30 40 50 percent grower but they don't need the they don't need the stumbling of a hundred percent grower going to eighty percent so I think there's still going to be, I think there's still going to be pockets of primaries that happen just at lower valuations than what you were seeing in 2020 and 2021. Yeah, that's super, that's pretty interesting. And you guys will just stay away from the, well, not stay away. Your
0: mandate is not to invest in early stage companies. So there's, what are the impact looking like for the next two years for you guys? Yeah. Sorry, I uh, cut out then there. What, what uh, oh, which? No problem. I'm saying like, what are the, you know, the economic outlook for the next two years? I think you already mentioned that. What's the implication of a down rounds look like for you guys, for Stack Capital Group? Is that a good news for you? Capitals are, companies are valued.
1: We are really excited about this because once again, we're 70% cash. So we waited on deployment because we saw the market basically getting slow, slower, like November, December, or January. So we're excited about that because those down rounds just mean a better margin of safety for us. Now, if you're an investor who was already fully deployed in your 2020 and 2021 vintage, I wouldn't be feeling as good. But with us sitting on so much capital, we're going to pick our spots and take advantage of that dislocation in the primary and even in the secondary market where individuals need liquidity because you saw over the last two years, a lot of people were taking a lot of leverage on the public side of their book when there's a lot of these crossover investors and also using some of that leverage on the private side. So we think there's going to be a lot of really good opportunities on high quality businesses in the secondary market. Okay. And uh, let me, uh, let me finally ask, what is
0: your vision, Jeff, for Stack Capital Crew for the next five to 10?
1: I want to continue to invest in world-class businesses that, and democratize access to these private businesses, grow this pool of capital into a multi-billion dollar platform where we see just unbelievable businesses that we can invest in for underlying shareholders. Yeah, that's super interesting. And if I'm a retail investor,
0: how can I get started right now?
1: With the- if, you, sorry, if you're a retail under, how retail, can you? How- yeah, how
0: can I invest in stock capital right now?
1: Yeah, so easy. So we're very easy. You can go on to whatever trading platform you have or your retail broker. If you have a retail broker, ask them to buy STCK. So ticker STCK on the TSX. And that way, then you actually have exposure to the underlying businesses that we have in our portfolio. Mm. And if I'm an
0: institutional investor, how do I directly get in touch with you or?
1: Yeah. So we have, we have our investor relations, Brian Viveros. It's just brian at stack You can email him and he can set up any meetings with us and happy to talk to any of our shareholders.
0: Okay. But yeah, that was such an awesome episode, Jeff. So I think I learned so much on what you guys are doing. And I think your approach is so unique. And I'm so pumped about your journey for the next couple of years. And I'm super excited to have you on the show today and hope you can come back once, once you guys have got a lot, a lot bigger. So thank you again for coming on the show today. I
1: appreciate the time. Thank you very much for having us, George. Builders
0: Build, a Mex podcast, is hosted by George Poo and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more builders build content subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bloomx.io to join us on discord.